is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you being influenced? If you've watched a blockbuster film in the last decade, there's a chance it's been influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. Here's the reality. The CCP may be running the largest influence campaign in history. In Hollywood Takeover, brought to you by the Epic Times, investigative reporter Tiffany Meyer reveals how the CCP exerts control over some major studios. Don't miss the most important documentary about Hollywood yet. And for a limited time, you can watch the first 10 minutes for free at hollywoodtakeover.com slash Ben. HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. Are there any moments or spots on any of the sets we worked on over the seven years that you guys felt more at home that were like your little spots on the set you like to hang out? I'm afraid it was the sink. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. You had to act <laughs> by the sink a lot. lot. Yeah. I was behind the counter. Yeah. Right. Doing business constantly. Uh-huh. Mom stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> Disciplining you <laughs> in some way. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. President Biden and the Biden administration have presided over the worst foreign policy catastrophe in a generation. Americans across the nation are horrified. Our servicemen and women, our active duty military are angry, they're disillusioned, and they're frustrated. Our enemies across the globe are emboldened, which makes the world more dangerous today for America and our allies are dispirited. Ever since the disaster began unfolding in Afghanistan, we've seen the Biden administration making political excuses. We've seen Democrats on this committee explaining at great length how everything that happened in Afghanistan is Trump's fault. It's all Trump's fault. Mr. Secretary, Joe Biden is the President of the United States. Kamala Harris is the Vice President of the United States. You are the United States Secretary of State. Just like Jimmy Carter owns the disaster of the Iran hostage crisis, you own this. Welcome back to Verdict with Ted Cruz. I am Michael Knowles, joined by Senator Cruz. Senator, I am really glad that I am not on the losing end of a hearing from you. I almost felt bad for Secretary of State Antony Blinken, except listening to what you said to him, 
It just seems that they totally blew it. Well, they did. And unfortunately, they're not doing any better. It, it's one thing to screw it up and then say, okay, let's go fix our mistakes. But they're not changing what they're doing. I mean, right now, the Biden administration's focus is all political. They're just trying to spin it. So their talking point, and, and you saw Democratic senators echoing that in that hearing, is that it's all Trump's fault. It's all Trump's fault. It's all Trump's fault. Don't blame Biden. At, at one point, Chris Van Hollen, a, a Democrat from Maryland, suggested we hold hearings on George W. Bush. So it wasn't even just Trump's fault. It's Bush's yeah, fault. Not Obama's fault. It goes all the way back. It, it, it skipped Obama just altogether. It went back. It, it is really screwed up when the only thing they're focused on is politics. And, and, and I will say later in that uh, cross-examination that, that there were two things Blinken admitted to that were really important. Number one, there had been media reports that the Biden administration had given the Taliban a list of Americans and list of Afghans that they wanted to let out. Um, the Biden administration had never confirmed that. And so I asked Blinken flat out, did you give them a list? And he hemmed and hawed. He didn't want to answer that. But finally, and it took two or three times going back at it, he finally said, yes, we gave them a list. I asked him how many. He didn't know how many he gave them. He said thousands. He said, no, not thousands. He said hundreds. Well, maybe hundreds. So we don't know. The obvious follow-up question now is, okay, you gave the, the, the Taliban a list of Americans and a list of Afghanis that you wanted out. What's happened to them? How many of them escaped? How many of them have been hunted down for torture or murder? That, that is a serious follow-up that needs to happen. Because the, the argument for the list for giving the Taliban the list was here are the people that the Taliban you have to let out of the country yep. and you better fulfill your promises just like you always do and you better play nice. The way that normal people I think are interpreting this is you gave them a kill list. You gave them a list of people to target. So what's going on with them? And the thing to understand is, is this entire Biden circle, it's, it's like a university faculty lounge. They're so fundamentally naive. They think the Taliban want to be welcomed at a Georgetown cocktail party. They think they care what the United Nations thinks about them. And they fundamentally – it's an ideological extremism but also this, this deep naivete. That and incompetence is what led to the disaster in Afghanistan. But a second thing Blinken confirmed is the first time the administration has done this is that so, – so they screwed up the evacuation on multiple fronts. They gave away Bagram, and by the way, giving away the Bagram airfield will be taught 100 years from now in War College as among the great strategic blunders, second only to starting a land war in Asia. No, wait, they did that too. <laughs> Sorry, I can't resist the princess. Uh, at, le at least they haven't gone up against a Sicilian when death is on the line yet. Yes. Although I think you, you have some Sicilian blood, don't you? Uh, I, only Italian, okay, not Sicilian. Fair enough. The boot and not, not off the tip of the boot. <laughs> Do you have Sicilian in you? I do, in fact. I, ah. this is my, I, don't, I don't like to admit this on air, you know, but, but the, you know, we're joking about the Princess Bride. They have made every classic blunder. It, it's massive. And the second big admission Blinken had was they brought tens of thousands of Afghanis here. They did terrible vetting. They don't know the background of who, who it is. So they didn't get the right people out. They didn't actually evacuate the Americans, and there are hundreds of Americans still there. 
But at the same time, they scooped up tens of thousands of Afghanis without vetting them. And among them are, are some significant number of adult men with children, with little girls that they claimed were their wives, that were child brides. Now, this this seems like, and I say this is a conservative talk radio host, this seems like the sort of sensationalist story that this seems like a fake news on the internet, but we're now getting confirmation that this has actually happened. Well, and, and the clearest confirmation is the Secretary of State under oath told the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, yes, we have had adult Afghani men come with little girls and say they were their wives. And what he also testified to, so he confirmed that. And he also confirmed that in some instances, they've had to separate them. In other words, you had little girls being sexually assaulted by grown men. And the Biden administration, after trafficking those children in, separated them. I asked him how many. He didn't know. He said only a handful. How many is a handful? The State Department had formally requested, and they used this word, urgent guidance about what to do with these grown men with little girls who saying they're their wives, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, again, the Biden administration, said that it was a product of desperation. And, and what's terrifying is, is their Afghani moms, who presumably have a little girl who I, I don't know what age we're talking, whether it's 14 or 12 or 10, that are so desperate to get their daughter out of the country that, that, that they may well have just been handing their daughters over to grown men. Yeah. And, and one of the disturbing things is, is the percentages in Afghanistan of child brides. A massive number of children are married in Afghanistan and domestic violence. World Health Organization puts the rate of domestic violence in Afghanistan at 90%, 9-0. It is an accepted norm and by bringing tens of thousands of evacuees into the United States with no vetting, we're bringing that child abuse and that domestic violence, that crisis the Biden administration is importing while at the same time abandoning Americans behind it. Because what we were told is the Afghans were coming here, they're, they're all the good guys and the ones we're leaving there, those are all the bad guys. Now you're seeing among the so-called good guys who – we were told we're going to be vetted. They weren't vetted. Some people have come here, actually have already been convicted of crimes in the United States before they even came yep. here because they yep. were deported. And now they've come back. We were told they wouldn't leave any Americans behind. They did leave Americans behind. It's And we're only talking about this one area of policy. It's a complete blunder. So my question beyond all of the this dark comedy of errors is – who takes responsibility? Blinken would not take responsibility. Biden doesn't seem to be taking responsibility. Most people don't think Biden's even calling the shots because they don't think he knows what end is up. Pardon my disrespect. So who's running the show over there? The White House is running the show and, and the political operatives there are running the show. What, what really drove – you know, I've had a lot of people ask, well, why would they – why would they suck so bad? I mean, I mean at the end <laughs> of the day – why would this be such a disaster? And and if you look at the evacuation, to use a math concept, yeah. um, wait a second, I was told there'd be no math. I know, I'm a little, um, <laughs> a little nervous here, but yeah. Their evacuation was both under-inclusive and over-inclusive. It was under-inclusive that they didn't prioritize getting the Americans out yeah. and they didn't keep Bagram a secure airfield that would have kept our servicemen and women safe and allowed us to get the Americans out. They also left thousands of legal permanent residents. Green card holders are still stuck behind enemy, enemy lines. And also probably tens of thousands of Afghanis who 
assisted us. So they were under-inclusive because when they just took off and left and everything went to hell, they had no plan for getting the people out. But they were also over-inclusive because instead of prioritizing the Americans, they just started grabbing people, I mean, tens of thousands, bringing them here. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was at Fort Bliss. Fort Bliss is is right outside El Paso. It's El Paso, New Mexico on, on the western tip of Texas. And Fort Bliss is where one of the places where they're housing a number of these evacuees. Mm-hmm. And, and I did a helicopter tour of Fort Bliss, went up with the commanding general, and, and it, they're putting them in what were troop barracks. And so they're barracks that they use to train troops before deployment. And they were erecting these massive tent buildings, these giant white tents that held up to 100 people each. And they were just erecting them to build the capacity to hold up to 10,000 evacuees. And so I'm in the helicopter and we're circling around. I asked the commanding general, I say, well, what kind of vetting are you doing of of the folks here? And he says, oh, no, no, we're not doing any vetting. (laughs) No, 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 they're doing the vetting in country. So, So he's counting on... In, in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. And, and mind you, this is while planes are taking off from Kabul and, and Afghanis are hanging to the wheels yep. and falling potentially to their death. So the vetting is half-assed. And I said, well, what security is there? And the general looks at me and says, there's no security. There's no perimeter. There's no fence. And he said, this is not a detention facility. He said, we have no authority to detain anybody. They could just walk out. Once they get here, he said, any one of them can leave anytime they want. At the time, it was only a few days in, into to the evacuees coming. They were having planes land every couple of hours. He said at the time, he said about 35, 36 of them had left already. One had literally called an Uber <laughs> and had taken an Uber from the camp to downtown El Paso. They had no idea where he was. And, Michael, nobody knows this. So everyone assumes the camps where the evacuees are taken are secure facilities. Processed. They're they're wide open and they are free to go anywhere they want. And the Biden administration apparently doesn't care if these are adult men with little girls who they are sexually assaulting. The vetting is so half-assed that there is a very real risk that, that if even one or two jihadis are in the mix, that we could see a suicide bomb like we saw in Afghanistan, but but in an American mall or restaurant. If they're, if they're letting people hop on these planes who have been convicted of crimes in the United States, yeah. surely the vetting is not top-notch. And it's not as though they're only going to Fort Bliss. They're going all around the country. I mean, what, what sort of numbers it, are we talking about? It's here? Fort McCoy, which is in Wisconsin, is where they've had – where the State Department asked for, quote, urgent guidance on what to do with the adult men with little girls who they said, oh, this is my wife. Um, and the State Department folks were deeply concerned. You know, I was dismayed. Blinken seemed to know next to nothing about it. He acknowledged it was a, it, it existed. Yeah. But he had no sense of urgency that, wait, why are we participating in exploiting little girls? And, and you asked who the decision-making is. Yeah. The weird thing about this process – I don't think state was the decision maker. I don't think defense was the decision maker. I think it was the political operatives at the White House. Hmm. And I think two things drove it. Number one, Joe Biden and his political team wanted him to give a speech on September 11th. On the 20th anniversary. A triumphant speech. Nobody else could end the war. I ended the war. I am the great liberal hope. And that 
political mandate trumped everything else. Hmm. So when things started to go to crap, they didn't alter it because they had a political mandate. So we had, over the last month, um, we had multiple conference calls with the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And at one point, it was with all the senators, and, and at one point, a number of us were asking, but we're asking, for example, Secretary Austin, the Secretary of Defense, General Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said, look, who advised abandoning Americans behind enemy lines? Right. And, and the answer was, well, we didn't know who the Americans were. We didn't know where they were, so we didn't know how to get the ballot. So there was no plan to do that. Not a great excuse. And when, when they were asked, well, why did you abandon Bagram? The answer was the order came from the White House to lower the troop count, to drop it below 2,500. And what Milley said is, he said, look, we had a choice. We didn't have enough soldiers to maintain Bagram and keep security at the embassy. And since we had to keep the embassy, we had no choice but abandon Bagram because we'd been ordered lower, lower the troop count below the numbers necessary to maintain it. So that's what drove their leaving it was an arbitrary political mandate Look, the Biden White House, they're so astonished that they're being held to account for this. They're used to the press. Look, Joe Biden is used to questions like, what's your favorite kind of ice cream? Chocolate chocolate chip? Is that? I didn't even know the answer to it. I was so, I was so, so pissed at the question. I, did, I didn't really care what the answer is. But these guys, I, I will say it's, it's oddly enough an advantage being a Republican in that you're used to everything you do being attacked yep. uh, from every direction from the press, that, that before you do something, you try to think through it and... and how am I going to get hit for this? What, how is this going to play? I think these guys are so complacent that, that whatever crap they're shoveling, the press will happily shovel it. They just didn't have anything resembling right. any competence. They had a political objective. Move on. I could not figure out, I could not for the life of me figure out why they abandoned Bagram. I thought, I understand why they're still going through with this. I understand why they make the deal with the Taliban. I understand why they're not even reacting to the terror attack. But I said, why, why do you leave Bagram before the evacuation? But it, of course, makes sense. If the top line order is you need to reduce the number of troops and then you say on the ground, well, okay, but with this, we already only have 2,500 troops. If you reduce it anymore, we have to make a decision. Do we hold the embassy? Do we hold the airfield? And they give up the airfield. And the pitiful thing is it appears nobody in our military pushed back and said, what the hell are you doing yeah. abandoning a secure airfield before the evacuation? I mean, I mean it is on the merits, truly indefensible. Bagram doesn't just have one airstrip, it has two. Two world-class runways. It has a secure perimeter. And, and think about, you know, we had horrific suicide bombing, murdered 13 servicemen and women. Uh, yesterday, I gave tribute uh, to Lance Corporal David Espinosa, a Texan from Laredo, Texas, who, who was one of, one of the 13 killed. He was 20 years old. He was just barely out of his teenage years. He didn't have to die. Those 13 servicemen and women, they didn't have to die. And if the evacuation had been at Bagram, the odds are really significant that they wouldn't have died because it was built to withstand terrorist attack. Unlike the Kabul airport. Right. The Kabul airport's a commercial airport in the middle of a dense urban environment. It tragically invited the kind of terrorist attack that took their lives. And, and this was 
a political mandate from the White House combined with the military wouldn't press back at all. It appears that the Joint Chiefs didn't press back, the Secretary of Defense didn't press back. And one of the interesting things, the Biden guys are, are spending a lot of time floating, well, the screw-ups are all Austin's fault and Milley's fault. It, it's pretty clear, this is before the Milley bombshell of this week, but it seems clear to me that they're trying to set up for the defense secretary, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to to quit or be fired as the scapegoats, because I think the Biden administration, their priority is protect Blinken and more importantly, protect Biden, protect Kamala and protect the political operatives in the White House, who are, of course, the decision makers doing all. So I want to get into the top operative at the White House right now, Ron Klain, the chief of staff, because shifting gears from the foreign side of things, onto the domestic. The White House has also just pushed this massive vaccine mandate, something they said they weren't going yep. to do. Biden said he wouldn't do it. Kamala said Dr. Fauci said they wouldn't do it. Now now they're pushing it. The chief of staff, Ron Klain, seems to have made an admission about the way this mandate that is yes. rolling out that could compromise the legality of what they're trying to do. Well, that's exactly right, and it's it's the the dangers of Twitter. So <laughs> we've all fallen prey at various uh, times. Th- there's some tweets I've sent that my team has yelled at me. <laughs> normally, a smart aleck comment or something that that uh, seemed to make sense at the mm-hmm. moment. But but um, but never an admission that you're breaking the law or potentially violating the Constitution. Well, and and let's step back for a second and, and give a little context. Number one, the reason I think they rolled out the vaccine mandate was to change the subject on Afghanistan. I agree. I agree. Uh, They were getting killed on Afghanistan. It was the first issue where Democrats were attacking them, and even more so the press was. I mean, when their most passionate groupies, and by that I mean CNN and MSNBC and all the networks, were going after them in Afghanistan, that was a real problem. By rolling out the vaccine mandate, all of the press fell back in line. They all came to their standard talking points, hooray, hooray, mandate vaccines, and it drove drove Afghanistan off of the front page. I think that was the political desire. What Biden did is, is I believe, blatantly unlawful. So there's several things. There's one, a, uh, an executive order for federal employees and for federal contractors. That has arguable legality. You've got more authority over federal employees, so so he's got more of a hook to claim the power to do it. He shouldn't have done it. It was abuse of power, but there's at least an arguable legal hook for that. But he also rolled out uh, an order for every company in America with 100 or more employees, and and he did it through OSHA. Can I ask a stupid question? What is OSHA? Uh, It is the Occupational Safety Hazard Administration, And, and so it... It makes workplace rules and regulations for injuries at work. Mm-hmm. And they rolled it out under, under a standard that, that, that is called an emergency temporary standard. I'll give you a little bit of the kind of legal background on it. So the test for an emergency temporary standard, it's called an ETS, is that employees are exposed to, quote, grave danger, from exposure to substances or agents, so it's supposed to be like asbestos, those kinds of things, determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards and that the emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. So that's what they have to prove. Okay. It's a high standard. 
it also could only be in effect for six months. Hmm. After six months, they have to have a formal rule that goes through notice and rulemaking and all of the, the requirements for formal rules. Now, by the way, OSHA, the average time for a formal rule, how long do you think it takes them? I don't know. I, I, I really have, I have no frame of reference. 93 months. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say 93 days. 93 months, nearly eight years, is their average time for a formal rule. So the ETS, (laughs) the Emergency Temporary Standard, is a six-month window. It can be challenged once it goes into effect. Uh, Anyone affected by it can challenge it. And you challenge it immediately in the Court of Appeals. So you skip the district court. It's a weird, because it's an emergency standard, you go straight to the Court of Appeals. So... Anyone across the country affected by this can file a a challenge in the Court of Appeals. Uh, The Court of Appeals can stay it, Mm -hmm. which means order that the rule not go into effect. If there are multiple Courts of Appeals, which there almost certainly will, then it goes into a multi-jurisdictional panel (laughs) that decides which Court of Appeals will hear the case. (laughs) Okay. And do you know how they figure it out? At this point, I think they're going to cast lots or something. That's exactly what they they, they draw it out of a drum. Stop it. So the statute says you put a piece of paper, you put something inside of a drum, and then you reach in and pull out. Okay, you're in the Fourth Circuit. Congratulations. When do they burn the tea leaves? It's a weird – and the statute specifies all this. Wow. Um, (laughs) I I want to assure the audience that was not a setup. I actually did not know. So they're basically literally casting lots to figure out – which court it then goes to. And then it can go up to the Supreme Court. Okay. So OSHA very rarely uses this ETS authority. Um, They have issued an ETS nine times. Okay. Of the nine, five of them were either fully vacated or stayed or, or partially vacated or stayed. Four of them were fully vacated or stayed. One was partially vacated or stayed. Okay. So more than half of them. So they don't have a great record here on these things being upheld. And the ones that were upheld, and by the way, a couple of them weren't, weren't challenged. Mm. So of the nine, the, one, the ones that survived, they weren't always challenged. Right, right. But of the nine, the ones that survived all happened before 1980. And in 1980, huh. the legal standards changed, and it became much tougher to promulgate an ETS. So th- what I'm gathering here is that this mandate in the way that it was rolled out is completely bogus. That That's a technical legal term, um, <laughs> and, and I don't appreciate you whipping out the, the, oh, the, my the, the, the jargon. jargon. <laughs> it's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> um, another, another technical legal term. On its face, it is. Yeah. But it's the, the really cynical part. Number one, they did it to change the subject. Mm-hmm. But number two, they know there's no legal basis for this. Hmm. They know they're going to lose. It's like the eviction moratorium. Remember the eviction moratorium? You know, the CDC decided no landlord in America can evict anyone. What the heck does that have to do with the CDC? I mean, it's... And that was during the Trump administration, right? So just to show you how the, the, the power in this country works, even under the Republican administration, this random administrative agency that has nothing to do with rentals and property. Unelected bureaucrats. Wow. Um, and it, when it went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court 6-3 said, no, you can't do an eviction moratorium. There's no legal authority for that. You're the Center for Disease Control. Right. Um, same thing's true here. So the Biden guys know 
that this is not going to survive. The, the OSHA rule is not going to survive. But here's the really cynical part. They don't care because they're gambling that it'll take months or even years for the litigation to resolve itself. And in the meantime, 90% or more of people will comply. Right. And in particular, right. the big company. So this really is the Fortune 500 getting in bed and spooning with Joe Biden. So you're saying the big companies like the man. They love it. And, and, and look, if you're a big company that you want to force your employees to be vaccinated, but you don't want to get the blame because they're going to be pissed off. Right. This is perfect. You can say, gosh, you know, the government's making us do it. Uh, what choice do we my have? My hands are tied. And so there are a lot of big companies that are eager for this political cover. Mm -hmm. And it's cynical. It's going to force. There are people um, who are quitting their jobs. There are people who are going to be fired because they choose not to get a vaccine. And you and I have talked about it. I'm, I'm someone who believes in vaccines. I've been vaccinated. My family's been vaccinated. But the government has no damn business ordering you or me to take this vaccine, particularly an experimental vaccine. We don't know the side effects of that. It ought to be a personal health care decision that you make with, with, your, with your doctor. These guys, they don't care. This is about power. Yeah. And they're doing something they know is lawless. I, I guess my, my question about it is I, I entirely agree with that read on it, especially now knowing how this actually works out in the history you know, with, with, with these challenges. But it seems unpopular to me. The vaccine mandate seems politically unpopular. Am I just in a bubble with all these right-wing conservatives? Yes. Or I am. I suppose that's it. <laughs> um, look – Yes and no. I mean, I mean, we just had the uh, California recall. Mm. Tragically, Newsom is still there. Now, now there was a brief shining moment yeah. uh, where it looked like he might be knocked out. And, and listen, there are conservatives, particularly conservatives in California, who are demoralized right now. I, I get that. But it's worth pausing and reflecting. A year ago, Newsom and Andrew Cuomo were on top of the world. The golden boys of American statecraft. The word Cuomo-sexual had been uh, <laughs> coined. Sends a shiver up my I, spine. You know, Cuomo had just gotten a $4.5 million yeah. dollar book deal. Now, you and I have both written books. Yeah, never quite that sort of advance. I think the numbers worked out to $53 a book. <laughs> I, at, at that point, it ought to just be... Cash in a brown paper bag passed to him uh, under the table. Yeah. Um, but they were – look, people were talking about let's replace Biden with Cuomo. Yeah. They were bestriding the world like Colossus. Now Cuomo's gone and Newsom just had the scare of his life. Yeah. And frankly, if you look at the polling numbers in California, Newsom, the question of whether he was going to get recalled or not was very, very close. Yeah when it was a referendum on Newsom. Mm -hmm. The reason he ended up winning and winning by a big margin is once Larry Elder became the primary opposition choice. Yeah. What the Democrats did well is they attacked Elder and they made it, they made Elder Trump Jr. Right. They I made mean, him explicitly. They said this guy is this guy's worse than Trump, actually. They explained that as an African-American, he's the face of white supremacy. Black Let face of white supremacy. <laughs> But, but, but they believe this nonsense. And so once it was, they shifted it and made yeah. a referendum on Trump. Yeah. 
not a referendum on Newsom. And Newsom ran on vaccine mandates. He did. And, and what brought that up is you asked about it. I saw some exit polling today that showed in California a plurality of California voters thought Newsom's rules on, on vaccines and COVID were about right. And a big chunk of them thought they weren't strict enough. Wow. Your, your old wow. state is, is nuts. Yeah. That's why I fled to a land of freedom. All my exes live in Texas, which is why I now hang my hat in Tennessee. I, I, yeah, you, I played that for you on this show. <laughs> the, very, um, the very day we moved. That's right. So look, I, I think vaccine mandates are actually quite unpopular in most of America. I mean, the idea that the government will force you to, to inject something in your body. I mean, that's a really yeah. extraordinary threshold. And look, one of the damn talking points is, ah, oh, well, what about measles in school? Well, measles has been around a long time. We've had vaccines a long time. Uh, the risks in terms of kids getting vaccinated for those sorts of diseases are very different than a new and experimental vaccine that I'm glad it was developed, but it was developed incredibly quickly. There's obviously no long-term data. It just hasn't been around long. It, 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 so we're going to learn the pros and cons. Listen, I got the thing. So yeah. when I assessed the pros and cons, I decided the pros outweighed the cons. And, and you know, Michael, you know my parents. My mom got it immediately. She's 86. Your father, though. My dad... <laughs> argued. So, so, so my dad is 82. I love him. He is bullheaded. For a month, we argued. Yeah. And he did not want to get this vaccine. And, and we went back and forth. And I'm like, Dad, you're 82. Like, like <laughs> you're in the risk group. I mean, but, if there is a risk group. And, and he was staying home because of COVID. I'm like, don't you want to get out? And he's a preacher. Don't you want to preach? Don't you want to see people? He finally agreed to take it, but he got the Johnson & Johnson one because it's a more traditional vaccine. Yep. Right. And and that was fine. You know, that's actually, he talked to his doctor. He decided, okay, he thought the risk was, and fine, if he's freaked out about that. Yeah, prudential judgment, and he's right. That That's actually what a mature adult, like, tries to learn as much as you can and make a reasonable decision. And that's that's how it should happen. But the Democrats, and by the way, as far as I know, as far as, as best I can tell, every Senate Democrat is just fine with Biden mandating the, the vaccines. Yeah, of course. Of course, because it, it takes the, just like it takes the pressure off of the corporations, takes the pressure off of all of these Democrat politicians. Now, we've gone through a series of pretty difficult losses here. Obviously, loss of American credibility overseas. Obviously, the horrific loss, just the literal loss involved in the withdrawal of, uh, from Afghanistan, the loss on these vaccine mandates, at least in the short term. We do have to mention... A, a victory. And uh, this question came in. It's a, a question that I would have, I would have brought up e even if it hadn't. It comes in from Jonathan who says, uh, Dear Senator Cruz and Mr. Knowles, the Britney Spears conservatorship appears to be coming to an end. <laughs> Are you responsible for freeing Britney? Uh, well, we'll celebrate when it happens. Yeah. Uh, but listen, I mean, you know, straightforward cause and effect. We devoted a verdict podcast to Britney Spears and to the conservatorship, mm -hmm. which was abusive and wrong. And we stood up and said, free Britney. And, and what do you know? It's, it seems to be happening. I'm not saying that correlation is causation. Yeah, you are. But, but some people, some people yeah. certainly yeah. are. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. That is, that is a bit of a victory lap. And that's the right thing to happen. 
That is the right. That is the right thing to happen. Serious. Oh, jokes aside, that is the right thing to happen. You know, look, and her father, as I understand it, is asking not to be the conservator anymore. That is a very good step, and he's asking the conservatorship be dissolved. And, yeah. and it that should have happened a long time ago. I hope the court follows through with it. Look, frankly, it's another example of arbitrary power. In that instance, the California state courts, again, Democrats, abusing arbitrary power. And the principle of individual liberty, it ought to be something that people, whether it's whether or not you put a shot in your arm or not, uh, what decisions you make in your life, whether someone can make decisions for you, you're almost never wrong starting with a base of individual liberty. Now, speaking of young women and erratic public behavior, AOC just showed up to the Met Gala. AOC, the young self-styled socialist congresswoman from New York, wearing a very nice dress. At least it was elegant from the front. Uh, This is a $35 or so thousand dollar per ticket event filled with the richest, most famous, most hoity-toity ruling class people in the world. And on the back of her dress, it said, tax the rich. Are we on the brink of the revolution, Senator? Are are we finally going to tax those rich people? You know, hypocrisy is a beautiful thing. (laughs) I actually would have respected it more if it said eat the rich. (laughs) Go all the way. Come on. You you know, go go full Jonathan Swift. Like like, um, it'd be a modest proposal. Yes. It made clear what utter crap it is that the left is selling. Yeah. It's a $30,000 a plate dinner. I've never been to a $30,000 a plate I keep dinner waiting there. for my invitation. It, it never that, shows that, up. That just ain't my circle. <laughs> so she's surrounded by gazillionaires, masters of the universe, by the way, who are all lefty Democrats, every one of them. Yep. So she's surrounded by rich Democrats. None of whom are wearing masks, I should note. Well, the servants are. The servant, the help. To to protect the good rich people from their filthy germs. And that really is the view of the left. They make the servants wear masks Mm -hmm. and they – it's like Barack Obama at his birthday party dancing away on the disco floor. Of course none of them have masks. Listen, in the Senate, all of these guys know this is crap. Right. Behind closed doors, Democratic senators don't wear masks. They pal around, and then when TV cameras come by, they put on masks. I mean, look at AOC's, though, the arrogance. She was on a live TV camera and was laughing away with no mask while perfectly happy mandating you wear a mask. You know, I'm actually pleased to hear, Senator, that your Democrat colleagues know that this is all bunk behind closed doors because it bothers me that they're liars and hypocrites, but I'm glad at least they're not complete lunatics. When I was watching the AOC I didn't say they're not lunatics. <laughs> they may also be, just not in that particular <laughs> issue. When I was watching AOC show up there with Tax the Rich pretending to be this radical revolutionary, I I had a similar reaction. I said, just say, eat the rich, go all the way. What was so offensive to me was not even even the hypocrisy, but the the frivolity of it, that that this woman who is basically a tool of these plutocrats of this ruling class, she pretends to be the the opposition. Well, and what people don't understand is rich people love socialists. Yes, yes. That's what they fundamentally don't get. The Democratic Party is the party of the Met. Yeah, of <laughs> that's right. Of rich, trivial, frivolous, yeah. glamorous Hollywood elites. And when you have socialism, it never, ever, ever takes money out of the hands of the real rich, of the generational rich. John Kerry will keep flying his private jet. Of course. To go give lectures on climate change. Of course. 
But what it does, when they say tax the rich, what they really mean is tax someone who's making their money for the first time. Tax the small business, tax the employers, tax the middle class. And it's what every socialist country, they have, go to Europe. The Rothschilds live a pretty good yeah. life. <laughs> socialist countries have rich people. They don't have new rich people. Yeah. So all the folks there say, we got ours. Yeah. So let's tax the hell out of the next guys that are coming after us. I will say, though, that I was particularly glad that her dress, they used the exact font from the Chick-fil-A bags. <laughs> like, I'm wondering if that's actually like Times New Roman, Calibra, Chick-fil-A. Tax the rich and eat more chicken. Yes. And I really was tempted. So there is a meme that, that has her in her dress and it's a Chick-fil-A bag. <laughs> and I was tempted just to tweet out that picture along with two words, spicy chicken. <laughs> and, and I just thought they would, they, the, the, the left would, those are one of those tweets that my, my like yeah. staff would immediately call and start yelling at me. Say, uh, Senator, like, you're going to take that down. I, I, but it, it, does, it does show you where the real revolutionaries are, where the real subversion is. If, if you and I had been invited to that, to that Met Gala and we put on a very pretty dress, of, I mean, maybe, maybe a suit or something, and on the back we said, uh, save the babies. On the back we said, uh, salute the flag. We would be escorted off the premises so fast. No one would take our picture. No, certainly no one would applaud us. The, the woman is being presented as the great, you know, thumb in the eye of the establishment. They gave her magazine photos and rounds of applause. It's such a farce. You know, the media did go a little crazy because at Joe Biden's inauguration, I wore my mask with come and take it. And, and uh, so, so that wasn't a small. And I they didn't, didn't like it. I didn't, didn't have like it printed it. on my ass. But, but, but you know, it, it was in a, in a smaller way. I felt more tasteful. Uh, you know, a little more understated. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. Yes. By the way, can I tell you an upside of, of the mask idiocy? Please, please do. So on Capitol Hill, as you're walking down the hallways, every Democratic staffer wears a mask. Every Democratic member wears a mask. No Republican staffer wears a mask. <laughs> no Republican member. So they're self-identifying. You right. can walk along and you'd be like, there's a little dim, there's a little dim. And it's, it, it's <laughs> like they're wearing burqas. They're, they're all like... It's a secular kefia is what I think of it. Yeah. And, you know, my, my standard response is, is they messed up because their masks aren't tight enough. They, <laughs> they, they, we can still <laughs> yeah, hear them. That's right. Maybe add two or three or four. It is, it is amazing. I mean... Symbols play an important role in politics, and the mask has long since stopped being a medical instrument. At this point, it really is a, just a political symbol, and you can look and around. And the press. It's the Dems and the press. Uh, but you repeat yourself. Indeed. <laughs> now, I, I think this perspective is very important, especially how is it that we're still talking about Afghanistan you know, in 2021? It seems kind of crazy. And we would be remiss if we ended the show without pointing out we've just had the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks. I remember it vividly. I was 11 years old. I was in the third grade. My, my, I'm sorry, not third grade. I was in the sixth grade, but I was in my third period math class. I remember exactly where I was mm. when I got the news. My mother was in the city. She was in Midtown, so she wasn't really at So they risk. sent you home from school or what? They, they, did, they kept us at school. They didn't know what to do. A, a lot of kids had parents, not only who worked in the city, but who worked at, at Wall Street or in the Trade Center. Yeah. Some of those parents didn't come home. Wow. My, my mother got off the train at uh, 125th Street at Harlem. And because they'd heard that there was this problem and maybe the trains were going to shut down. And she, she just sat there looking at it smoking. And then, you, you know, you could see all the way down Manhattan Island. She saw the, the building just collapse, just a little tiny 
just a little yeah. blip. And, this, and, and so – and she got on the, one of the last trains out of the city, came back up. And people were covered in soot. I mean it was really uh, – you know, so I, I was 11 years old. I still have all these graphic images from that day. You were a little older than 11 years old. So I was. I was, I was in D.C., um, and I was working with the George W. Bush administration. Uh, so I was working at the Federal Trade Commission, and, and Heidi was working at the White House. And I remember it was a September morning, uh, and I just just gotten dressed and was getting ready to walk out of the apartment, and Heidi called me and said, turn on the TV. And so she was already at work, and, and so I turned on the TV, and I saw the plane had just, just hit the first tower. Um. And I thought, like everyone did, this is some terrible accident. You know, what happened? Some pilot screwed up. You know, at first we didn't know it was a big jumbo jet. We thought it was just, you know, if it was a Cessna or something, it, it looked like yeah. a tragic accident, but we didn't appreciate what it was. And so I'm standing in our living room and I'm just looking at the TV with the tower smoking and, and watching it and people trying to figure out what it is. And then the second plane hit the second tower. And that we all saw, and we saw it was a commercial jet. And when it plowed into that tower, that instant, everybody knew what this was. Yeah, you know my, my uh, wonderful priest in New York, Father George Rutler. He was in Midtown when the first plane hit. People are running up, people in smoke, and then when the second plane hit, I think it was at that moment he he runs. He may have run down after after the first plane, but he runs down after the second plane goes into St. Peter's. It's the first uh, Catholic parish in New York. It's right downtown mm -hmm. to get oils, to, to give wartime absolution because he knew and a mm -hmm. number of people knew at the time this was an act of war and the firefighters who were yeah. going in there, they were going into a battlefield. Yes. So we give gen general absolution. And at that moment, they carried in Father Michael Judge, who was the first confirmed casualty yep. of 9-11. They laid him on the the steps at St. Peter on the, on the altar like a, like a pieta. He had right. been crushed. And uh, so the the spiritual import, the, the, the wartime import of that day was, was clear the, the moment that second plane hit. Yeah. So Heidi was – she was at the U.S. Trade Representative's office, which is part of the White House complex. And, and when the first plane hit, the Secret Service came through and they said, stay where you are. There's – something's happened, but just stay where you are. And so she was watching it and it, and it called me and so I was watching it at home. And then when the second plane hit the second tower – the Secret Service was running down the halls and they said, get out now. They said, run, don't walk, run. And so Heidi sprinted out of the office. Um, her car was parked in an underground parking lot, so she couldn't get her car. They wouldn't let her get her car. So she proceeded. We were living in uh, Virginia, northern Virginia, uh, Pentagon City. And so she took off her high heels and, and walked barefoot. Uh, across Memorial Bridge and, and to Virginia. And we lived less than a mile from the Pentagon. And so when the Pentagon plane, when the plane hit the Pentagon, from our apartment, you could smell the smoke. You could see the soot in the air because it was, we were just south of the Pentagon. And, uh, and the cell phone coverage was not very good. So when Heidi left, I knew she was evacuated, but I couldn't get her on her phone. Yeah. And one of the networks, I think it was ABC, when the Pentagon plane hit, you know, there was the fog of war where people are confused about what's going on. And so one of the networks reported the White House has been hit. So I'm sitting there like, holy crap, I just got off with Heidi a second ago. Is the White House on fire? Yeah. 
and there were a couple of minutes where it wasn't clear, like there was an angle, there was a camera angle where it, the smoke from the Pentagon looked like it was from the White House. And I guess there's a lot of speculation that that Flight 93 that went down in Pennsylvania yeah. was either targeting the White House or the Capitol. Right. And so there was a period of time where I didn't know where Heidi was because we couldn't get through on the phone. And then she walked home, and and the plane that hit the Pentagon, we, we had a good friend of ours that was on that plane. Uh, that was Barbara Olson. So, and, you know, Barbara um, had been married to Ted Olson. Ted, Ted was the U.S. Solicitor General. I've known Ted for 25 years. Um, Barbara was down, down in Florida in Tallahassee with me for Bush versus Gore. Hmm. And, in fact, Barbara and I flew together on a plane. They sent me up to Philadelphia to get Arlen Specter. Arlen Specter was the senator from Pennsylvania. He was coming down to be a surrogate for George W. Bush. And I was the young staffer that they stuck on a plane and flew up there to brief Specter so that he could talk to the press when he got down there. And so Barbara flew up with me and she spent the entire three hours of the flight just giving me grief that I needed to man up and ask Heidi to marry me. <laughs> and she's like, are you a chicken? Are you a coward? And I had actually already asked her dad for permission to marry her. I'd planned to do it, and Bush versus Gore <laughs> delayed the whole thing. And so I couldn't tell Barbara. Right, so I course. just I just took the grief for yeah. three hours. She's like, you need to ask her to marry you. You're an idiot. Don Corleone, you can act like a man. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it was. So the whole, she, and she was a fireball. And, you know, the story, Barbara called Ted from her cell phone on the plane. And Ted, who's at DOJ, DOJ is the number three official at DOJ. He answered the phone. Thank, thank God he answered the phone. If you could imagine that hell, he knew Barbara was on the flight. It was the day after her birthday. Um, and he knew what had happened to the planes in the Twin Towers. So it was not... Yeah. He knew they weren't seeking to take the plane to Cuba and let everyone off. Right, right. It, it was, he knew the likely ending of this. And they were low enough that the phone worked so she could get him. And and the last thing she said to Ted, she said, okay, what do we do? And she was, she was a fighter and I think was wow. given a minute or two would have organized the same sort of thing that happened with Flight 93. I mean, she was like, ready to battle the bad guys and they they Patrol, yeah. crashed into the into the Pentagon and and so it was a moment you know we were all stunned um the next day Heidi and I invited several friends over to our apartment um including Eugene Volok hmm. yeah, who yeah. is a you know law professor at UCLA brilliant guy Eugene came uh Eugene is Jewish uh, and we did a prayer service. We did a uh, we had Christians and Jews, and we just spent the the evening reflecting, sharing, and praying for our country. And and it was um, even though it was twenty years ago, the image that that for me is seared in of that day is the people leaping to their death from the top of the towers, and they don't air it anymore on yeah. TV. Yeah. But, you know, the people who were in the upper floors as the fire was coming, and if you could imagine the you're standing there at the window and you have a choice between being burned to death, what a horrible way to die, 
or jumping to your death. And we were watching on live news as people were leaping to their death and falling. Um, and it was a moment of unity and national resolve um, that was extraordinary. And it's, um, it's a real contrast to what we have today. It is, because you, you do, re- 20 years on, you remember, it is amazing, even you know, being 11 years old, you remember it so vividly. And then, and it has become cliche almost to say, there was September 12th and 13th and 14th, and there was the, this real uh, national unity. When Bush stood on the rubble with the bullhorn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and said, we can hear you. Soon the whole world will hear you. It's the highlight of his presidency. That and throwing the strike at Yankee Stadium afterward. I, both of those yeah. were were extraordinary and powerful moments. Yeah, well, it does, it does remind you, even thinking back on these horrific events, hope is, uh, it's not just a feeling, it's not just a sentiment, it's a, it's a virtue, it's a fact, it's a theological fact. And, and I still believe in that unity and greatness in this country. Yeah. We're, we're at a chapter where we're, angry and bitter and at each other's throats. But but I believe that same power of resolve that brought us together after 9-11, I still think we have that and I think we can get back to it. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, and we've got to stop screaming at each other. Uh, but I, I, I believe we can. I think you're right. Optimism and pessimism, I think, are two sides of the same coin. Actually, this is quoting my priest friend who ran down at 9-11. Optimism and pessimism are two sides of the same coin, but hope is a fact. And uh, that's something we can rely on and uh, we can uh, pray and hope for better days. Amen. I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. We'll see you next time. This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations, and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom, and Security PAC plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hollywood is under siege from an external force. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream is now making nightmares a reality. Many major films make choices to appease the Chinese Communist Party to be distributed in China. Join Tiffany Meyer, an investigative reporter in Hollywood Takeover, brought to you by the Epic Times, where she reveals how the CCP exerts control over some major studios. Don't miss the most important documentary about Hollywood yet. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free at HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben. HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben.
Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash Ben Ferguson here, and if you're an accredited investor, U.S. oil and gas should be a part of your investment portfolio. And I want you to visit LabradorEnergy.com. Beyond the possibility to invest in a sector that historically delivers sound returns, when you invest with Labrador Energy, you may be able to structure your investments to offset active or passive income. According to many sources, U.S. oil and gas drilling remains one of the best tax-advantaged income investments available. Visit Labrador Energy. You may be able to reduce your tax liability while investing in a sector that historically delivers sound returns. Learn more now at LabradorEnergy.com today. Offer for accredited investors only. Past performance is no indication of future results. Investing involves risk. Consult your legal, tax, and financial advisors and read the prospectus before making any investment decisions. Visit LabradorEnergy.com for the prospectus and more information.